This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. The city of Macon in central Georgia. Today we meet 27-year-old Lauren Giddings. Born to parents Karen and Bill, Lauren had two other sisters, Sarah and Caitlin, and she was the oldest. They were very close and said that the real star of the family was Lauren's dog, Butterbean. Lauren had always been driven and her dream was to become a public defender. In the spring of 2008, she made the move from Maryland to Macon, Georgia, to pursue this. Residents in Macon say it is slow and relaxing. Everybody is welcoming, you never meet a stranger, and it's generally a quiet and peaceful place to live and study. Lauren gelled with her new home instantly. She was in a long-distance relationship with David Van Diver, a corporate lawyer, and they had met at his Atlanta law firm four years before. Even though she was two decades his junior, they had so much in common, and David said she was wise beyond her years. They clicked right away, shared the same work ethic, the same dry but also silly sense of humour, and they supported each other through some very challenging personal and professional times. David said she was outspoken, intelligent and very level-headed. Lauren even managed to charm his very protective older sister, something he joked was impressive as nobody had managed to do that before. Little did Lauren know, David was planning on proposing to her. He had already chosen the perfect spot. However, the vast distance between them since her move had made things hard, and they briefly broke up. Lauren had started seeing another student called Joe, but she quickly realised she still loved David a lot and really wanted to make it work. So she called things off with Joe, and he was pretty upset, but they did remain good friends. Flash forward to June 2011, and Lauren had just graduated from one of the oldest law schools in the United States, Mercer University's School of Law. Naturally, her dog Butterbean was there to watch her graduate, as was David and her whole family. Lauren was now looking forward to taking everything she had learned and throwing herself into the next chapter. The next big step was passing the Georgia Bar exam, and every spare second she had was going into prepping. After graduation, she attended her sister Caitlin's wedding back in Maryland, and told people after this she really needed time to knuckle down and focus on her work. The family all knew it was the last time they'd be together for a while, and this made Caitlin's big day even more special. Like many students after graduation, Lauren had opted to stay in Macon instead of going back to Baltimore. She lived on the second floor of the Barristers Hall, Unit 2. Barristers Hall was a place built exclusively for law students, and it was situated directly across from the campus. 
Still being able to go in and talk to lecturers and use the library while she was studying for the bar just meant it made sense for her to stay there a while longer. Back at her apartment, though, her safe and quiet space soon felt very different. Lauren had spoken to her sister about something that she couldn't prove and knew sounded strange, but was convinced was happening. She could feel things were being moved around, like someone was coming into her apartment. When she got home after being out, there was a weird energy she couldn't explain. She felt someone was watching her but there had been no signs of a forced entry, so she had no idea how this could be happening. This uneasy feeling she had had not subsided, and on June 25th, 2011, late into the evening, she sent an email to David about her concerns. David told her not to worry, and said it was probably just some hoodlums messing about, but not actually intent on doing anything. And she was working hard and not really leaving her apartment much, so it was possible she had been going a little stir-crazy without realising. Lauren sent out a mass message which read in part, Hey guys, I'm hunkering down to study for the bar. Please don't be offended if I don't respond to texts or emails. And in the following days, no one heard anything from her. Apart from going to church and making time for the occasional workout, she was doing little else apart from reading, so a few unanswered messages or phone calls was not something that was immediately alarming but her best friend Katie and her sister Caitlin had repeatedly tried to check in with her, but were being met with silence. Caitlin was on her honeymoon and sharing photos, and it was strange that she wasn't replying to any of them. It didn't feel that she was just focusing on other things. It started to feel like something was wrong. A fellow student, Ashley, got a call from Caitlin asking her to stop by her apartment and check in. Before Ashley went, she tried calling her too, but Lauren's phone was now going straight to voicemail. Ashley and her boyfriend pulled up at her apartment and noted that Lauren's car was still parked outside. Using a spare key, they let themselves in. Lauren's belongings were sort of strewn everywhere, but this didn't seem that odd because she was due to move out and move in with David. But when they saw her calendar and realised the date, she was actually supposed to move out the very next day, June 30th. Then they found Lauren's purse, law books, cell phone and laptop. Things everybody could agree, she would never have just disappeared without taking. So, where was she? Ashley called some friends and people she knew lived in the same complex. Even Lauren's ex Joe started searching the university, and everyone else was looking nearby. The consensus was the last time anyone had heard anything from her, was at an end-of-year party four days ago, but she had left the morning after and everything was fine, and a few hours later, she had emailed David talking about her worries being in the apartment. The following morning, with still no luck, it was time to call the police, and her family set off on the almost 12-hour drive to Georgia to help. At 9am, officers got to number two, the barrister's hall. Right away they noted that there were no signs of a forced entry, no signs of a struggle, and nothing seemed to have been stolen. But they could all agree that something was definitely wrong. They started combing through her rooms and one of the first things they did was use a spray luminol to see if there were any traces of blood. Everything was coming up clean, but when they used it in Lauren's bathroom, the result was very different. 
Her bath had clearly been full of blood. Police believed they were now looking for Lauren's body. June 30th was a hot day with a strong breeze, and as they moved their search outside to form a new plan, a big gust of wind came along which forced a smell in their direction. They were stood near some bins, and a distinctive odour stopped them in their tracks. It was undoubtedly the smell of human decomposition. One officer said, while we were standing there, the wind started to turn. We all smell things in life that smell bad, and that smell of a body, or a decomposing body, is one of the worst things you'll smell. Police opened the lids and made a grisly discovery that would stick with them forever. It was a female torso wrapped in a black bag. Testing needed to be done, but given the fact Lauren was missing and the luminol results from her bathroom, they strongly felt that it was a part of her body. I had never seen anything like that before. Who could have done this? Because truthfully, only a monster could do something like that. It was absolutely horrible, one detective said. In a weird twist of fate, the police cars being parked near the entrance had stopped the trash removal van from getting in to empty everything. If the police hadn't been there at that moment blocking things off, everything would have been gone by the time they'd started searching. As suspected, testing confirmed it was Lauren Giddings' torso. The chief medical examiner would later confirm that there were no signs of sexual assault, but could not confirm a cause of death. They did believe she had been killed and dismembered on June 26th. Lauren's apartment, especially the bathroom, was now being dusted for fingerprints and the likes, but it looked like there had been a pretty thorough clean-up done, and only Luminol was picking anything up. They had cornered off everything outside and were trying to keep what they had found under wraps. If it was someone in the complex, they didn't want to alert them to the fact that they had just found her, in case this caused anyone to run or hide more evidence. One officer said, You have to look at who is closest to the victim, either romantically or geographically. The people involved in the initial search, Ashley, Joe and the others, were all asked to come in and give statements. They also spoke with her partner David, but he was not only devastated, he had been away on a golfing trip in California and his alibi checked out. It was quite obvious that he was not at all involved. Lauren's ex, Joe, was much the same and was quickly ruled out. The authorities were keen to search every home in the block so they could start eliminating people. Everybody was happy to do this. Everybody apart from one person, 25-year-old Stephen McDaniel. So why would this be an issue, they wondered. It's the lawyer in me, I'm just always protective of my space, he said. He was a fellow law student, also prepping for the bar exam, and had been living next door to Lauren since the first year of law school, number four. He had actually been there in the initial searches for Lauren, walking around with her friends, and someone they had asked to come to the station a few hours before. With me is her next door neighbour who lives in apartment four. Can I get your last name? McDaniel. Stephen McDaniel. When was the last time you think you seen Lauren? It was either last week or the week before that. I was coming back from bar prep and I was driving back and I saw her going out to run. Is there anything that you could tell me today or add to your statement that could help me locate Lauren? I can't think of anything. I mean, we looked around to see if there was a note or if there was anything, but... There was just nothing that we could find to try and figure out where she was. 
They continued to search the rest of the block, but kept their eye on him. His behaviour was looking odd. He was both refusing to help with anything, but at the same time loitering around and making sure he was involved with everything. Stephen stayed there all day, watching everything everyone was doing, and walking around after the police as they were in and out of other people's homes. He was raising eyebrows, even more so when the media started interviewing people. He was one of the first people to talk to them and gave his theories about what could have happened to Lauren. That was living there? Yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, We're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, you always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies you might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went out... We went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. What about um, in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, any, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. That's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I I think I need to sit down. Okay. At this point, only a few people knew about what they had found in the bin. And, after the interview was over, Stephen sat for ages, just staring into space. Now, they haven't confirmed, at least not with us, that it, it was um, or that they found. Are you holding out any hope right now? I, mean, I, I hope, but... You haven't heard anything about a body until you were talking to us? No. no. As far as any of us knew, they were still trying to just find her. We, uh, Joe, he got onto her computer last night to see if she had said anything. She'd sent an email out to some people. There was an email that she sent out after 10 that night where she, she sent to, I think it was someone in Atlanta, a friend of hers in Atlanta. She was afraid in her apartment that she thought that someone had tried to break in on Thursday night. And she, she was afraid to stay in there. But... Where did you hear? Where did you hear that from? From Joe? No, he he pulled it up and we we read it off the screen. I hadn't heard anything on Thursday night. No, she no. never came to you to tell you anything. No, I. She was afraid in her apartment. Then I mean, get her out of there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A few hours later, he finally let the police into his apartment. He was stockpiling food, energy drinks, and lots of various weapons too. They looked through the drawers and found a variety of things, including some condoms. When police pulled them out, Stephen mumbled something about being a virgin and saving himself for marriage. He started talking to them about being on the dating site eHarmony, but said he wasn't having much luck with getting dates. He was acting so oddly, and when police asked why he had the condoms, he muttered something about breaking into two neighbouring apartments and randomly deciding to steal them. With his own admission that he had been breaking into other people's homes, just feet away from where Lauren had lived, police arrested him for burglary and brought him in for further questioning. Macon police say a canine unit from Dooley County has volunteered to help in the search for the remains of murdered Mercer grad Lauren Giddings. Macon police are following several leads in the case, but so far have no official suspects. Gidding's neighbor, 25-year-old Stephen McDaniel, remains in jail tonight on unrelated burglary charges. Police continue to gather statements from students and neighbors in what they're calling a detailed, painstaking process. Although he had been keen to talk to the media and know everything that was going on, he was now totally silent. All right. I just got to ask you a few more questions. Okay. Uh, you came down earlier tonight, me and you talked, all right. You don't have any weapons on you, do you? No. That's just you are. What's wrong? You know I'm Detective Patterson, right? Yes. Do you remember? Put your hands up here. You remember us talking? I need you to know about this girl right here. You know her? Yes. Who is that? Lauren Giddings. Does she live next door to you? Yes. Okay. Look at me when you talk to me, son, okay? Was you friends with her? Yes. I'm asking you for help. I need your help. Can you help me? I don't know. You don't know if you can help me? Yes. I need your help. Help me out. Tell me what to do. There were inconsistencies with what he was saying, and he was reluctant to answer things. It was mainly yes, no, or I don't know. What do you think happened to her? I don't know. Do you even care that no one can find her? I mean, I don't know, do you? Yes. Well, you know there was a body found in the trash can next to the apartments. Yes. And it's a female, white female's body, right next to y'all's apartment. We don't know 100% sure it's Lauren, but we're pretty confident it is. I mean, who would, who would do something to somebody and throw them in a trash can? I don't know. And you know why? We've been working all day trying to find Lauren, right? Yes. Because her family wants to know where she's at. Yes. And I don't know what to tell her family. So I'm asking you, what do I need to tell her family? I don't know. It's all on you, brother. What do you want me to tell her family? Huh? I don't know. Well, I need to know. As well as this, his mannerisms were strange. Police said they hadn't seen anyone respond this way in an interview before, 
He sat almost perfectly still the whole way through, barely even moving his head, with officers having to ask him to look them in the eyes from time to time. The interview footage sped up highlights just how eerily still he sits and how unusual it looks in comparison to the officer's natural demeanour. Even when detectives left the room, he remained in the same position, staring straight ahead. His constant repeating of no and I don't know was now starting to grate on Detective Patterson. There was no doubt in his mind that this was the person behind the awful thing that had happened to Lauren. You got your ass on that fucking news and stood out there and gave a media report that her mother saw. You sure stood out there and ran your mouth to the news media, but now you're going to get out here and you don't fucking know. You're just a sorry piece of shit that don't give a fuck. Why would you not be honest with me? I am being honest. Stephen, it just doesn't feel like it, buddy. You know, I get the sense that there's something weighing heavy on your heart right now. Stephen, did you hurt Lauren? No. What'd you do, buddy? I didn't do anything. What'd you do to Lauren? I didn't do anything. But it was now past midnight and they were no further forward in getting answers. You're going to look at this right here, this little girl right here, and you're going to say you don't know? I know you know. I don't know. Yes, you know. What are you going to say tomorrow when I say we got your hair with the body? I believe that you're a good guy, you've been picked on, girls didn't show you the respect that you deserved, you did something stupid, and I believe you feel bad about it, and that's why you're all freaked out right now. We want you to, to tell it so that way people are understand you're not a monster, things just, you got out of control, it's a sickness. Why'd you do it, Stephen? I didn't do Stephen, it. Stephen, why are you going to keep telling that? You hurt that girl. No, I didn't. Yes, you did, Stephen. I'm going to take this from me. You don't deserve to look at it. Just stay right here, okay? Okay. I appreciate all your cooperation tonight, okay? Okay. Stephen also revealed he had two scratches just above his hip as well. As the interview progressed, Stephen's apartment was being turned upside down. Investigators found that he somehow had a master key to get into every room in the complex. They found the packaging for a hacksaw and several flash drives, which later turned out to have graphic and disturbing images and videos of children on them and a pair of underwear that, once tested, came back to Lauren Giddings. A look into his search history showed he was often on her social media profiles and he would be searching these at the same time he was looking up and watching violent pornography. They found he had written blogs about torturing and killing women too, sharing his depraved fantasies on forums. It was all disturbing and given the amount of searches he had made for Lauren's name, he was clearly obsessed with her. And one of his last and latest searches was for Macon's trash collection times. It's all over anyways. The game's over. I mean, we know what you did to her, so we just want to know what you, if you were going to tell us or not. 
I didn't do anything. Well, that's what you say. But we know different. So you're fucked either way. So you can sit there with that dumb look on your face. But it's over. I don't know what you want me to say. Don't you say nothing. You're fucked either way. Thought you were smarter than everybody. Somebody always leaves something in a crime scene. You fucked up. First, I didn't really believe you had anything to do with it. They said, man, it couldn't have been him. He used to work down the DA's office with us. He's a good guy. He used to help us out. Friendly guy and everything. Couldn't be him. He couldn't have done something like that. The sad thing about it is you probably could have made something with your life. But you chose a different route because, one, you don't have a girlfriend, and two, you're never going to get a girlfriend. In the maintenance room in the complex, they found the hacksaw that matched the packaging found in his apartment. There was blood on it. CCTV had confirmed it was him buying the hacksaw too. They also found a bloody sheet and both of these came back to Lauren. The maintenance worker had already been ruled out and the only other person that somehow had a key to get into this room was Stephen. This was Lauren's killer, but who was Stephen McDaniel and why on earth had he done this? Classmates of Stephen said he was uncomfortable to be around, very awkward and difficult to talk to. He would ask people weird things about death fixating on a zombie apocalypse and committing the perfect murder. He would quiz people on how they would, hypothetically, kill someone and cover it up. In school, Stephen was actually voted most likely to be famous. His fellow law students said he definitely thought he was the smartest person in the room, smarter than everyone and arrogantly so, always ready for a debate even if he was totally wrong. He would bicker with everyone, Lauren included and other students said he was quite happy to disagree and argue. He wasn't there to make friends. That was clear, one person said. They, along with their teachers, said he was an average student. He wasn't someone that really stood out in any way, but he sure spoke like he did. Now he was finally coming to the end of his time at university, and he was unsure as to where to go next. He was finishing school with no friends and no future plans. He was somewhat adrift. From the minute they started living next door in 2008... Lauren had really tried hard to be his friend and be supportive. She even stopped to introduce him to her mother Karen when they saw he was hurriedly walking alone around the complex. Karen met him again on the eve of their graduation. There was something about him, she said. After she spoke to him for the second time, she couldn't help but think of him living next to Lauren. I thought it was odd that he always kept the windows and curtains closed. You never saw him, she said. But as nice as Lauren was trying to be, he had the same effect on her that he did on most people. He just made her feel uncomfortable. In an email that Lauren wrote to David in 2008, the same year she moved in, she spoke about Stephen's behaviour and wrote about butting heads with him in class. She said, got the stink eye, he's out to get me. But Stephen had definitely taken a shine to Lauren and had asked her to go out on a date a few times, but as well as being in a relationship, she just wasn't interested in him like that. From this point on, she was only being polite if she saw him, 
but was definitely keeping her distance. With everything they had found, on August 2nd, 2011, Stephen McDaniel was charged with the murder of Lauren Giddings. He was also later charged with seven counts of child sexual exploitation too. How are you, buddy? All right. Let me ask you a few more questions. I had nothing to say without my attorney. You don't want to hear what we have? Yeah. All right. I want my attorney. Despite his lawyers requesting his bail be set at $100,000, it was set at almost a million. A grand jury indicted him on one count of murder, and once all of his devices had finally been analysed, 30 counts of child exploitation too. The case building against Stephen McDaniel and the murder of his neighbor, Lauren Giddings, is getting stronger. Today, a grand jury announced there's enough evidence to prepare for trial. One count of murder and 30 counts of sexual exploitation of children. Those are the heavy charges stacked against McDaniel, who's been in jail since July 1st on unrelated burglary charges. More than 20 grand jurors heard from the district attorney's office this morning before deciding there's enough evidence to let this case go to trial. This indictment says evidence shown today leads the grand jury to believe Stephen McDaniel did kill, murder, and cause the death of Lauren Giddings, a human being, by inflicting bodily harm in a manner unknown to the grand jury at this time, including decapitation of said victim. Since the grand jury has decided there is enough probable cause in this case, the next step is arraignment. That's when McDaniel will enter his plea, and according to his attorney, Floyd Buford, it'll be not guilty. Although everything against him was really strong, the prosecution did note that it was still a largely circumstantial case. Apart from the underwear, there was nothing tying his DNA to her. Nothing of his was found in the bathroom, and none of his DNA was on the hacksaw either. In terms of the underwear, he could potentially explain it away as something he stole, just as he had done with the condoms. They still could not prove a cause or time of death either. But nonetheless, they were confident and ready to take him to trial. More evidence would soon be brought to their attention, which really did cement everything, and it was chilling to watch. On a memory card taken from his apartment, they found a video which proved that Stephen had been stalking Lauren for quite some time. Her feelings and worries about someone watching her and breaking in were not unfounded at all. On the same night Lauren was murdered, he had been filming her home through the window. He had taken a wooden pole which he had duct taped a camera to the end of and then held the pole up to be able to see into her rooms through her blinds. Prosecutor David Cook said the second he saw this, he said, that's the guy. A few days later, hundreds of people filled out the St Mary of the Mills Church for Lauren's funeral. Despite the best efforts of everyone, it was still only her torso that had been recovered, so that was all they could bury that day. Today, the Bibb County District Attorney's Office announced it plans to seek the death penalty against Stephen McDaniel. Stephen McDaniel pleaded not guilty and the defence were preparing to position the idea that the police were framing him and had entered his apartment many times to plant things. In another twist, one of Stephen's defence attorneys who briefly worked with him 
had actually been one of Lauren's teachers in a transitionary course from law school into law practice. He said he had admired Lauren and enjoyed teaching her, but one thing he did remember was that she was opposed to the death penalty. So, knowing that the prosecution were already pushing for this, he was pushing to throw it out. As everybody prepared for what would be a very tough trial, the prosecution agreed to drop the child sexual exploitation charges and offered him a plea deal. And this meant Stephen, with the advice of his lawyers, had a change of mind. In April 2014, just a week before the trial was due to start, Stephen McDaniel finally pleaded guilty to killing and dismembering Lauren. For nearly three years, two huge unanswered questions hung over the death of Lauren Giddings. What happened the night she died and what happened to the rest of her body since only her torso was found after the murder. Today, Stephen McDaniel spelled out the answers to those questions in chilling detail. As part of his plea deal with prosecutors, McDaniel agreed to write an allocution, a document detailing what he did and how. Stephen McDaniel is a psychopath who cowardly allowed darkness and evil to consume him. He should never be permitted to prowl the streets of this world again. That is the voice of Karen Giddings, the mother of Lauren Giddings, the Mercer Law grad who was killed almost three years ago. Today, Stephen McDaniel entered a guilty plea to the murder of Lauren Giddings. His guilty plea provides finality to this case and assures justice that cannot be undone. Because of this guilty plea, Stephen McDaniel will never again be able to deny that he and he alone is responsible for Lauren Giddings' death. One of his old attorneys said, the case took a turn for the worse for McDaniel when the computer evidence started coming out, and it just kept coming. They were continuing to find more and more evidence related to his computer and camera, and finally he agreed that was enough to get a conviction. Before he was set to be sentenced, the prosecution presented the evidence which attested to his character. They showed the recording of Lauren's home and read out some of Stephen's alleged forum posts, one of which read, Graduate from law school, party hard by drinking alone in front of my computer, see my sexy neighbour slash classmate come home late, Invite her up for a nightcap, make her a special drink called a Mickey Finn, a drink designed to knock someone unconscious. She's out cold. I finally lose my V-card. Oh no, she's OD'd and died. I barbecued her legs and arms to celebrate losing my V-card. Not into organ me, but threw her torso out. Loses on TV while the cops are discovering her remains, you mad virgins. However, the legitimacy of this came into dispute as some people claimed it was someone trolling online, and although the prosecution firmly believe it was him, it does remain up for discussion. As part of his plea deal, he had to admit to the court what he had done that day, and this was what he said happened. At around 4.30am, he unlocked her door using the master key. He was wearing all black with gloves and a mask. He said he stood watching her sleep, but she must have felt something was wrong as she woke up abruptly. Before she could get out of bed or even process what was happening, he leapt onto her and put his hands around her throat. The pair struggled and fell onto the floor. He said Lauren grabbed his mask and pulled it off, and when she realised it was him, she called his name and screamed at him to stop. She cried and tried to fight him off for almost 15 minutes as he was strangling her, before she ultimately stopped breathing. He dragged her into the bathroom and put her into the tub. He left her there for the rest of the night and following day. 
and on the evening of June 27th he returned with some tools, including a hacksaw, and proceeded to dismember her, which he described in graphic detail. He put parts of her into different bags which he said he dumped in bins around the university campus, but her torso he put into the bin next to the apartment block, thinking it would be taken shortly. He cut up his mask, gloves and shirt, and flushed them down the toilet. The medical examiner had revealed there were no signs of a sexual assault, and Stephen said he had not sexually assaulted Lauren. She was wearing pink running shorts when she died, and I never removed them. They were found on her torso just as I had left them, he told the court. Even though it had now been almost three years, people still couldn't believe it. Lauren had been nothing but friendly and kind to him from the second she met him, something Stephen acknowledged too. He claimed from that night on, he was in a dreamlike, delusional state and had convinced himself that Lauren was still alive. He said it's difficult for me to explain why I killed Lauren and attempted to conceal my deed the way I did. I know that it was very wrong. I am not delusional or without all morals or decency. Something in my makeup, my psychology, my neuropathy, my own particular pathology perhaps must explain it. He told the family he was sorry and grieves for Lauren every day, but doesn't expect forgiveness from them. There is no way I can ever deserve it. If I could take back what happened, I would, he said. The only reason the prosecution did not end up seeking the death penalty was because Lauren herself was so against it. Her family respected that and said they hoped he lived a long life in the worst possible way in prison. Stephen McDaniel was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole until 2041. He will be in his 60s. After he was sentenced, from prison he wrote a lengthy letter claiming he had been the victim of police intimidation and his case from the start had been unfair. We continue to get new glimpses into the psyche of Stephen McDaniel. In a neatly handwritten two-page document filled with small lettering, Stephen McDaniel outlines his experiences with making police. He complains that police yelled at him and intimidated him in an interrogation room for hours during the early stages of the investigation and wouldn't even let him go to the restroom without permission. McDaniel details being so upset he suffered a seizure and required medical help, but was only told that the EMT could look at him if he'd allow police to search his apartment. He says even after they got into his apartment, police never gave him medical care. He demanded a new, and in his eyes, fair trial. So, four years later, he filed an appeal where he represented himself and called more than ten people to be interviewed, including his old lawyer, whom he was seeking damages against. Now, things really didn't pick up until later in the afternoon as McDaniel began questioning his former attorney, Floyd Buford. And McDaniel decided to waive his attorney-client privilege, meaning that Buford had the ability to speak freely regarding his discussions with Stephen McDaniel. Up until the last couple of weeks of your case, I will strongly, in your corner, the graphic, specific, detailed confession which we were shocked about in the jail, uh, and then combine that with the searches on the internet, the fact that you had done searches about having sex with dead people, things of that nature. All of that combined to a heavy, heavy evidentiary problem in your case. On top of that, you possess the most horrific child pornographic photos I've ever seen. Now, in McDaniel's habeas, he claims that Floyd Buford, Frank Hogue, and the rest of his defense team failed to represent him effectively. 
Here's what Buford had to say today about that. In his complaint, Stephen asked the court to award damages from his lawyer in the amount of $50,000 for legal fees and another $250,000 in punitive damages for his lawyer's alleged negligence. He also filed a motion against Bibb County Judge Howard Sims, claiming he had shown prejudice towards him. This appeal was denied. The now 37-year-old filed another appeal again in 2022, which claimed that the prosecution had stolen documents, his rights had been violated, and his lawyers were incompetent. He was requesting his conviction be overturned and he be released from prison. Stephen's dad Mark stood behind this and said, We're hoping that the truth comes out. That's all we're hoping. But the judge said he could not even consider this appeal as he filed it over a year late, and this was also denied. Had McDaniel exercised reasonable diligence, rather than blindly assuming the Georgia Supreme Court was to blame, he would have realised that his motion was untimely, the judge added. Stephen has already filed another appeal and this is still ongoing. Some of Stephen's family and friends still believe he is innocent, and his dad even started a GoFundMe to help with his legal fees, but it raised nothing and the page was quickly removed. Lauren's sister Caitlin called it pathetic and delusional. His grandfather Hollis, before he died, gave an interview about visiting him in jail. He said, If all this that the police have got is true, then I guess I'm a broken-hearted grandfather. You come in and he's just sitting there quiet and you can't get nothing out of him. You feel like picking him up and taking him to the doctor. But he's grown, he's not a little boy. So it just breaks your heart. You have to accept what is in front of you whether you like it or not. I did what I thought was right at the time to get him a lawyer immediately. I thought he'd go over there and pay his bail and then take him home. But my God, when I saw him, he just looked... different. His mother Glenda defended him as well and seemed certain that at the time he was arrested, he was innocent. I have a big hug for him when he gets out and he has one for me, she said, adding that she has visions of him becoming a Supreme Court justice one day. But as far as the police, prosecution and Lauren's family were concerned, the trial was over and the correct decision had been made all those years ago. Lauren's sister Caitlin said, it seemed like she might have been one of the people who was actually nice to him and gave him some attention, even though he might have been a loner. There's no story here about telling your kids to lock their car when they get in or don't go to this side of town. You know there's no, she shouldn't have done this and it wouldn't have happened. Because you should always be nice to people. You should always be nice to your neighbours. Just because someone looks different doesn't mean they are. But in this case, he just was. Detectives believe they stopped a serial killer in the making, a predator and a danger to children that day. Once voted most likely to become famous when he was younger, he is now infamous in one of the most shocking crimes the community had ever seen. The police praised Lauren's family and friends for being so quick, and they acknowledged that if the trash collection services had emptied the bin where her torso was located, the case may have gone cold and they might have never caught Stephen. Investigators also believe that Stephen has never been entirely truthful about what happened and there is more to the story. I'm sure there are things he'll never tell anyone, said Detective David Patterson. Lauren's sister Sarah added, obviously we know she died, but we don't really believe anything Stephen McDaniel has said. I don't think he is a very honest person. I think he can make up a million stories. He has a very vivid imagination. 
They continue to search for Lauren's remains, believing they might even be in a 62-acre area owned by one of Stephen's family members. Although he is eligible for parole in 2041, legal experts think he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Lauren's family celebrate every milestone and every event she should have been there for, as if she is there and joining in. They also organise runs in her memory every year too. Her sister Caitlin named her baby girl, Lauren Magnolia, after her. Macon have two memorial plaques dedicated to her, and these can be found at Mercer Law School and on a pink bench in Washington Park, in Mercer's downtown district, somewhere she loved to run. Lauren's family also established the Lauren Teresa Gidding Scholarship. In the law firm where she briefly trained, Lauren was always known for wearing bright colours, especially pink. They even named Wednesdays Pink Wednesdays after her, joking that she was like Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. A close friend of hers said that her choice of colour in a famously monochromatic working environment always made people smile, as well as started a conversation. She immersed herself in a profession that's known for black pinstripes. Pink was her way of saying, bring it on to the world, she said. And friends said that that summed Lauren Giddings up. She made herself hard to miss and was unapologetic about it. Driven, a go-getter and ready to take on anything that came her way. Caitlin said, it's not like she doesn't exist in our lives. She does. It's just very different. <laughs> 